Thank you, Anton, for bringing some passion and enthusiasm to the party. <laughs> Three weeks until Christmas. Can you believe it? No. You what? Yeah, I guess I should just ignore. Oh. Okay. Well, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And the theme, if you noticed uh, on the little banner that sat at the front when you came in, is hope. And I'm going to talk about hope and, and that theme in a moment. Uh, but first, I want to take a few minutes talking about this concept of inbreaking, and really as it relates to Advent and the season that we're in. And that's the name of this series, Inbreaking the Kingdom Come at Christmas. And then each week we'll develop. Um, one of the typical Advent themes around that idea. So it's important that we sort of understand, you know, what inbreaking is all about. And so uh, if you look at the entire Bible, it's essentially uh, an epic history or sort of a world-shaping saga of God's redemptive purpose for humankind. It's what the story of the Bible tells us. And in John 1, the first four, roughly four verses, we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now, what does it look like when God breaks in, or what's that, that kind of is all about? Well, this point, we kind of turn to, turn to this idea of Advent. Now, what is Advent? Well, definition is it's the arrival, appearance, emergence of a notable person, a notable thing, or a notable event. Okay. And so the approach of Christmas for many followers of Jesus all over the world is known as a season of Advent. Okay. It's the time that we anticipate the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And the cool thing is that in the Christmas story, we find all three definitions of Advent happening at the same time, right? We have the arrival of Jesus, I would say a notable person. We have the activity surrounding his birth, certainly a notable event. And then lastly, we have the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, which is very clearly a notable thing. And so... When we talk about this idea of inbreaking, uh, it's defined as a breaking in, an inroad, an invasion, or an incursion. Okay, and so we say that at the birth of Jesus, an inroad occurred into the plight of humanity. Okay, here again the words of John one verse four: "In him Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in other words, it's light that breaks into darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. And so Advent really is the story uh, of the process or the way that God chose to break into this fearful, stubborn, resistant, desperate story of humanity. And sometimes how God does something, how God, how, sorry over again, 
how God does something is as important as what he does. And so if we were to, you know, to try to get this idea of what inbreaking looks like in our head, let's go to uh, some fairly recent history. World War II. And so when the Allied forces in World War II needed to break through the enemy lines, uh, they chose some beaches around Normandy, France. Well, they had a strategy for doing this, okay? The, on this beach was um, a pretty battle-toughened, resistant force, uh, and they were resolved to not let anybody past, right? And so the battle which ensued, which we know as the Battle of Normandy, uh, lasted for about three months from June until August of 1944. And it resulted in the Allied liberation of Western Europe from the control of Nazi Germany. It was known as Operation Overlord. That was its military code name. Uh, we typically refer to it as D-Day. And on that day, uh, roughly 156,000 American, British, and Canadian forces landed on five beaches, about 50-mile stretch, of a very heavily, heavily fortified coastline. It was one of the largest amphibious military assaults in the history and obviously required a lot of planning. And so by late August, all of northern France had been liberated. And the Normandy landings have really been referred to in looking back at the history of the war as the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. And so, while you know, it may not be quite as in vogue to use a military strategy um, or analogy now as it might have been in some recent years, it still remains a very powerful metaphor as to how a sacred incursion into the human heart occurred 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem that we celebrate at Christmas. There was a very complex and well-prepared strategy. Strategy is a plan, a predetermination, well thought out, goal oriented, visionary process in which a desired breakthrough would be achieved. There was a defined battlefront. Now, this is the place where all the activities of the challenge are going to play out, and the terrain is going to determine the strategy, right? If it's a land battle, you wouldn't bring a lot of boats. If it's a sea battle, tanks really are not going to do you a whole lot of good. If it's a battle for the heart, then love is going to have to lead it. And thirdly, there's a moment of head-on engagement. And at this point, resistance is very high. No amount of diplomacy has been able to accomplish any positive end. And so something has got to give. And as we see it in the biblical story of Jesus at Christmas time, it was God who gave. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he did so to engage the world in love with the goal of freedom in very clear view. And so in the Bible we watch God the Father's strategy unfold for breaking through the resistant, stubborn, and entrenched human heart. It may surprise us to know that Jesus, whom we often speak about in terms of love and goodness and kindness, 
was also bent on destruction. But what did he come to destroy? What was his battlefront, the point of his inbreaking? Well, in 1 John 8, verse 8, it tells us, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so this month's whole sermon series is about the way that God made his advance. How he confronted darkness by shining light into it and into the heart of a world that he loves so very much. And so now let us enter into this story of God's inbreaking at Christmas time. So our message today, which that is not it, is titled The Power of Hope. And I'd really like to talk about three aspects of hope that we see in portions of the Christmas story uh, as it appears in chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. Okay, and the first thing we notice if we look is that hope takes the form of perseverance during times of barrenness. And for that, we'll look at a couple of verses from Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. And it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, aside from Jesus, John the Baptist's parents probably had some of the most impressive credentials in Scripture. Okay? Zechariah was a priest. His mother was a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron, who was the high priest, or the original high priest. And then, if that were enough... They are both described in Scripture as being righteous before God and having kept all the commandments and statutes of God without fail. Without fail. That's pretty impressive. But to us, not so much to the people of their time. Because they were childless. And the Levitical law speaks of childlessness as a sign of divine punishment. So, as a very faithful Hebrew couple, they were expected to have children, right? They were supposed to fulfill God's command at creation to multiply and fill the earth. But they were pretty well along in years, the scripture tells us. And by all accounts, it looks like they have lost that opportunity to change what was a very disgraceful situation for them. And so they really had to resign themselves to enduring the disgrace the rest of their lives. Now, looking at that through purely mortal eyes, I would say they've got a pretty good reason to be upset with God. But they weren't. Look again at what verse 6 says. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Despite their circumstances, their faith never wavered. 
through all the years of frustration at being childless, through hearing all of the other snide remarks that the women must have been making to Elizabeth, either to her face or when they gathered to gossip together at the well. I wonder what sin she or Zechariah must have committed. Must have been a really big one. And so what was her response? What was his response? Did they strike back? Did they get angry? Did they lose faith? No. Decades of blameless walking before God. The point is, they never lost hope. They knew who their God was, and they knew what he was capable of. Did they understand why, despite their faithfulness, that they were still childless? I doubt they did. But they kept pressing on, to use Paul's words, press on to the goal. They persevered in their faith, despite the lack of children, and despite the ridicule of their community. That's what hope does when it encounters adversity. It becomes perseverance. And perseverance can have the power of hope when it's focused not when it's focused on who God is and not on what he has or hasn't done. Second thing we see is that hope can always be found in the goodness of God. So appropriate that we sang about the goodness of God this morning. And we look at two verses, again from Luke, verses 24 and 25 from chapter 1. After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now this is wonderful for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but this Elizabeth's conception is, is about a lot more than just the joy that Zechariah certainly had at finally having a son, or um, the exaltation that I'm sure Elizabeth had from finally being free from this burden that she'd carried for so long. It's also about the great fulfillment of God's promises and his purposes. It shows us that the deeds, the hopes, the fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in the larger story. Precisely because of who Israel's God is. The God of lavish, self-giving love. As Luke is going to tell us in so many ways throughout his gospel. A God who is good. Most every believer confesses that God is good. We have to. <laughs> it's in the Bible. It's not the belief in his goodness, however, that's what threatens us. It's our definition of this goodness that has brought much debate and sometimes conflict and even turmoil into the family of God. If he is as good as many people claim, then how do we respond to this truth? Then how we respond to this truth is going to require a massive change in how we do life. Instead of creating doctrines that explain away our weak 
and anemic faith, we'll actually have to find out why the greater works than these have not been happening in and around us. Creating a doctrine of no miracles today not only contradicts his word, it's a sneaky way to avoid responsibility. Instead of changing the standard of life given by Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, we're to embrace it and to follow his model. What does it say up there? To do the works of Jesus. It's, what we, it's one of our principles as a church. The bottom line is, <clears throat> it was never meant that the hour that we live in was to be inferior to Jesus' earthly ministry. It's quite the opposite. As Randy Clark is fond of saying, there is more. There is so much more than what we experience. With the greatest harvest of souls of all time, when it comes in, and I do believe that time is coming, it won't be because of our skill in preaching or because of our use of the media, or even because of wonderful, powerful music. Now, each of those things unto themselves has importance. But they do not exist unto themselves. They're important in that they are vehicles that carry the greatest revelation of all time. God is good. His goodness is a beyond our ability to comprehend, but not our ability to experience. If you'll allow it, your heart will take you where your head can't. One of the greatest <clears throat> one of the great commands of scripture pertaining to the experience of his goodness is found in Psalm 34 verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you'll taste for yourself, you'll see it more clearly. Your perception of truth will increase as you experience this truth more deeply. As you understand and experience the goodness of God, something else is going to happen to you. Your hope is going to increase. Because just as it was for Elizabeth, you too can find hope in the undeniable, unexplainable, and unsurpassed goodness of God. <clears throat> and then finally, hope creates an atmosphere that's ready for faith and joy. We'll look at a couple of verses, several verses here. This is from chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. It starts out, in those days... Mary arose, and a little context here. This is happening right after the angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary and has announced the whole thing about how she is going to become uh, the mother of God's son. So then we pick up at verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house <clears throat> of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. Oops, that was the wrong. There's the second half. All right, this is just... 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So let me pose a question to you. What would make you celebrate wildly and without inhibition? I know for Anton, it would be UVA winning the national championship. (laughs) But for the rest of you, would it be the news that someone who is very close to you and who'd been very sick was getting better and would soon be coming home? Or, Or would it be the news that your country has escaped from tyranny and oppression? and now could look forward to a time of freedom and prosperity. Or perhaps it would be seeing that the floodwaters which were threatening your home had finally receded. Or maybe it would be the message that all of the issues that were plaguing your small business or your job had been sorted out and you could just relax. Or would it be the people at your front door with a giant check from Publisher's Clearinghouse? See, whatever it might be, whatever it is that would create that sense of joy, you know, that just exuberant, uninhibited joy, you would probably start to do things that you don't normally do. You might just dance round and round the house by yourself with a friend. You might start screaming or crying or laughing hysterically. You might telephone everybody you could think of and just say, hey, come on over, we're having a party. But regardless of whatever the cause was and what the effect ended up being, hopefully these ideas give you some sense of what's taking place in this meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. You see, the two of them together with the entire nation of Israel shared a hope. It was the hope of ancient Israel The hope that one day all that the prophets had said would actually come true. One day Israel's God would do what he said to Israel's earliest ancestors. That all nations would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And that's what's taking place right now. And these two ladies are smack in the middle of that story. The hope that they've nurtured for so long has suddenly burst forth in an explosion of joy and renewed faith. The air, I I just think the air was probably thick with that, that sort of joy, joyous feeling. I mean, Elizabeth feels it. And interestingly enough, her joy is expressed through words of humility. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Baby Johnny feels it too. He's doing the Macarena in her womb. But underneath all of this joy is the celebration of God. God has taken the initiative. God the Lord, the Savior, the Powerful One, the Holy One, the Merciful One, the Faithful One. 
God is the ultimate reason for the hope that has produced such a joyous and faith-filled response in these two cousins, just as it should in us. <clears throat> Years ago, there was an ad in the New York Times that said this, The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we have the light within us. And so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, evil. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. Can we? One of the most thoughtful world leaders of the late 20th century was Vaclav Havel, who was the first president of the Czech Republic. And he had a pretty unique vantage point from which to peer deeply into both socialism and capitalism. And he was not optimistic that either would, by itself, solve the greatest human problems. He knew that science, <clears throat> unguided by moral principles, had given us the Holocaust. He concluded that neither technology nor the state nor the market alone could save us from nuclear degradation. Havel said, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and seeing of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets, he added, that he is not God. The power of hope is in the inbreaking of God at Christmas. And I pray that you will turn to him and see him even more clearly in the season of Advent, the season of preparation, of waiting. Persevere if you are in a season of barrenness. Find renewed hope in the goodness of God. And celebrate the coming of Jesus with great faith and abundant joy. Amen.